This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com sustain. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where are we going? Which license is open source anyway? I mean, is that a, it's, is this a good license? Uh, all that sort of questions. Lots of fun. Here we have a few panelists on. We have Eric Berry. Hey, everybody. Justin Dorfman. Hello, hello. The illustrious me. Hello, everyone. And our guest, Joseph Jacks. Hey, folks. So Joseph Jacks lives in San Francisco and is the founder of OSS Capital and also works on Open Core Summit, which I think is a conference he's founded as well. Can you tell us a bit more about what you do at OSS Capital? Sure, yeah. So OSS Capital is, is an investment fund, and we're doing a few things, but mostly we invest at the earliest stages in commercial open source startups. So you can think of you know companies like HashiCorp, GitLab, Confluent, Red Hat, all different types of business models. Commercial open source companies is what we focus on, and we, we try and invest as early as possible when founders are just getting started. Even at the idea stage, there's like a tiny amount of code, very little, you know, little progress, and you know, we're we're super excited about investing as as early as possible. So it's a, a super small early stage fund. We haven't announced too many details publicly, but we've been around since September 2018, investing and um, building our building our our fund. When you say commercial open source, what does that mean for you? Yeah, that's a really great question. For, for me, I think I look at commercial open source as a category, like a type of company. Yep. And it's pretty abstract. It's like a very high level abstract superset type type of concept. And the best way to kind of cement it in the way I think about it and, and, and other people kind of connect with this is uh, to use a bunch of examples. So... I always think of it like as, as an existential definition. So like if you look at commercial open source companies, the one thing that, that they have in common is, is existential. So like they wouldn't have any reason to exist unless the open source core or open, open source project that the company is based on. It's typically one project. In some cases, like, like HashiCorp, it's two or three or four. But in, in, in a vast majority of cases, it's one open source core project. Like if that project didn't exist, like tautologically, uh, the company would also have no reason to exist. And this is kind of temporarily, you know, evolutionary. Like sometimes companies can evolve into being a commercial open source company and then evolve away from uh, being one for, for a variety of reasons. But that's basically the way I, I think about it. And then within that category, like if you can define a company as a commercial open source company, within that category, there's lots of different business models, lots of different ways of building product, different ways of going to market and and, and so on. So I'm trying to think, you mentioned GitLab. So GitLab exists because it's the open source way to do basically Git, right? So everything about the entire platform is open source. So people feel incentivized to join GitLab because otherwise it's just a closed source system. So you can't say GitLab without also thinking GitHub. You know, they're kind of eternally twined. And so GitHub is a closed source system that allows open source where people can use their product in an open source way. But if they want to have changes to the website, they don't have any access to it because it's closed source. And so Git lab exists in part because of this, because of this you know, dialogue between GitHub and GitLab. If 
GitHub was entirely open source. GitLab wouldn't really have a business model besides just being the same thing. It's just maybe slightly different patterns and, and so on. Does that make sense to you? It, is that yeah, what absolutely. Commercial? Okay. Definitely. I, I, think, I think GitHub and GitLab are two great examples. I, I tend to think of the companies as slightly different in terms of what they focus on. And uh, GitHub has sort of like a, a, a Facebook kind of social network feel, you know, huge amounts of people collaborating on public open source repos. GitLab, I think, you know, they're definitely competitors, but like, I think GitLab's focus is much more on private hosted source code repos and like helping enterprises build, you know, transform their development life cycles and, and embrace DevOps. And also it's a, it's a code hosting platform and you, there's a social network aspect too, and there's public accounts and so on. But I think they have slightly different focus areas. The example that you gave is, is a great one though, because I personally view, not everyone agrees with me on this, but I personally think GitHub and GitLab are equally both commercial open source software companies in terms of that definition that I was, that I was mentioning, which yeah. is that they wouldn't have a reason to exist. They, in fact, they wouldn't exist unless Git also existed. And you, you could totally make the argument, and which is completely fair, that like, well, GitHub could have chosen to write their own version control system from the beginning and not use Git, or they could have used Mercurial or Subversion or something, right? But you know, they chose to use Git. And so even though the core, the open source core, if you will, for GitHub is very small, it's like a sort, sort of super tiny core, and the crust around that open source core is really thick, like basically all of github.com and all this proprietary technology they've added around it, I still view it as, as, as commercial open source because that sort of existential definition is, is, is still true. And this is kind of why I think it's a really fascinating category just to think about is, you know, it, it, it's kind of agnostic to almost everything in terms of any, like just how open source is really just about inclusion and, you know, trying to not be discriminatory and, and, and very, you know, for, it's really about rights and freedom. Fundamentally, I think this definition aims to basically be as simple and abstract. But I think over time, the, the sort of general idea is that you know, any company is really building on a core open source technology that is the basis for their, for their business. And however, it's independent from their business. They're not, they're not monetizing that directly. They're not charging, you know, trying to convert users from that community. And you know, there's a lot of different nuances. So once you, once you sort of think, I think abstractly about it, then when you dig into that, there's a lot of nuances and kind of distinctions. So that's kind of, yeah, I spend all day, all day long kind of just thinking about stuff like this. Yeah. I, I'm just, I'm trying to piece it together because it's, it's, just, it's a weird concept because for me, open source means that the license is there and anyone can use it and you don't have to pay for it. Right. That's like one of the OSI definitions for it. Anyone can use it and it's, it's publicly available. And so I'm trying to think of, of examples that aren't then commercial open source companies. And one that came to mind would be John Deere, right? John Deere makes tractors, which are particularly good. They also do a whole ton of other stuff involving like road building and the like, and they don't just work in the US, they work everywhere. But what's fascinating about John Deere is that they have closed source all of their code. You buy a tractor from them and you mod out the tractor's internal code, you are basically affecting their copyright and you can get sued. And so it's a big issue where you have people trying to like change how their combines work and then they can't because then the full might of John Deere comes down on them. And so that's not an open source, commercial open source company. That's like by definition, they're still using code, but like it's the opposite, right? But what's interesting to me about GitHub and GitLab is that from that perspective, are they like John Deere? No, they, they use open source. They're all about open source. GitHub's all about the network effect of using Git. GitLab is all about, well, everything is available and we allow, you know, extra services on top of that for like proprietary software and or for companies that are trying to work on things. And they have slightly different manners, but both of them are commercial open source in comparison because both of them depend upon having an open source model at some level in their stack. 
But what you're saying is it doesn't really matter where in the stack it is, as long as, the, you know, as long as some part of a company is based on open source, then it doesn't matter how much they get back to open source. It doesn't matter, you know, how, how important it is to the company. What matters is that without the open source, that company can't exist. Or, or exactly, or wouldn't really have a reason to. I guess maybe maybe sharing a motivating reason why this definition and this kind of category thing is interesting to me. About ten years ago, I worked at a company, commercial open source company called Talent. There's a data integration, middleware tools. Um, they help developers basically move data, integrate data between applications. It's an enterprise software company, and they have this kind of open source core. And the, uh, and around that, they've sold enterprise products and commercial versions of those tools to, to big companies. And so I, I worked there pretty early in my career, kind of just like stumbled in there as a sales engineer. And in working at Talent for, I think, a couple, a little more than two years. And then after that, working at a, a fully closed core, you can think of the opposite as open source core as like kind of a closed core kind of technology company, you know, and then a couple of others after that. I just noticed, and then over the years, kind of, uh, you know, just kind of observing things that like abstractly, companies that have an open source core and that are commercializing and they're sort of their companies, you know, building products, charging for money for things, raising money, maybe growing and so on. Those companies compared to companies that are, that are the opposite, right? Like your, your John Deere example, closed core, like companies that are just normal, normal technology business. That's kind of 99% of companies really, yep. they're really very different. They're like fundamentally different actually on, on almost every level. The commercial open source companies, they build products very differently. They hire differently. Their business models are quite different. Like the, the way they create value is very different. And also the way they capture value is very different. And so, I mean, and then kind of just like the reason I actually personally got motivated to sort of work on doing all these things that I'm, that I'm doing the last couple of years is I, I sort of increasingly became convinced myself that the, the differences are not, are not just in like three or four areas, but in almost every area, actually, <laughs> they're, they're, they're very different, these companies. It's not to say that they're better or worse, good or bad. It's not, it's not a sort of like moral or ethical comparison. It's just that they're very different. The way most people in the industries, sort of in, in the investor world, analysts and enterprises, developers, even founders of these companies actually refer to these companies is they, they kind of call them quote unquote open source companies. And I, I, I think that that sort of terminology is kind of oxymoronic. It's sort of like a, saying a feather is heavy. Like it doesn't really make sense. You know the the open source term carries some weight. It has some meaning, and, and it's, it's pretty definitionally clear in, in my mind. Having said that, you know if you, if you ask twenty people in the industry that are reasonably you know close to the open source ecosystem, or you know, maybe not necessarily experts, but but they're pretty smart in that world. What you know if you ask twenty people what their definition of open source is, you'll probably get eighteen different answers, which which is sort of a, a, a you know one you know ancillary challenging thing. But the reason I prefer to call these companies, commercial open source companies or sort of cost companies, if you want to use an acronym, is a bit more useful. Is it basically just serves to put a finer point on the observation or the belief, or I think, I think the, 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 the reality that um, these companies are actually very, very different and they deserve their own kind of like analysis and classification and sort of understanding. Let me ask you a question. So the business source license, very controversial. What is your involvement with it? I'm actually personally not involved in the, in the, in the business source license. One of my, my partners, Heather Meeker, who's an attorney and, and a lawyer in private practice, but she works with me at OSS Capital. I believe she authored that license with a couple of other folks and she was kind of the main designer of it. You know, it's, it's definitely not itself viewed as an open source license. It does 
have a sort of like temporal dimension where after a certain point in time, the technology or the source code that, that has the BSL license will, will actually be switched over to an open source license like Apache or MIT, what have you. A lot of commercial open source companies have chosen to use the business source license for their sort of commercial enterprise product, as well as kind of the, the, the free, freely available version of the product in, in order to kind of protect against competitive dynamics or threats, what have you, for, for, for different types of reasons. I think MariaDB, if I'm not mistaken, was the first company to motivate the creation of that license. And then more recently, we've seen different versions of BSL be used by, by companies like CockroachDB and others. Personally, I'm not, I'm not, not involved in the license though. Sentry just not too long ago implemented it as well. And I, I like when David Kramer, the CEO, was interviewed on Changelog. He's like, no, we are not open source. We are source available. Like he made it very clear. And I think that's like one thing that makes me happy is when they don't like mix the definitions together. So yeah, I saw Heather Meeker as a partner. So I was just wondering, I was like, there's got to be some type of connection there. Yeah, Heather's amazing. She, she's really the, the world's most experienced and kind of proven like attorney in, in, the, in the realm of commercial open source licensing, as I call it, as well as just open source licensing. She was involved in designing and building pretty closely the Mozilla public license version two. But yeah, lots of sort, like definitely as David Kramer's mentioning, source available licenses have definitely become more popular in, in the last couple of years. They're, they're not new, really. I think they go back probably more than 10 years. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's important to acknowledge like is a license really open source or not and, and not, not kind of mix the terms. Yeah. And to be honest, like I really don't blame David because you know there's some nuance there. There's people that there's other quote unquote companies that just basically steal everything they do. They make a few adjustments and then they sell the product. So it's very, very tough to, I don't know why Red Hat's like the only company or not the only, but you know, the flagship that has able to figure out how to build a very profitable business and get sold to IBM for $34 billion. Are there other of those type of unicorn companies that, that are based off of open source and kind of transition to you know, a profitable business? That's a great question. I mean, I think there are actually, there aren't that many, but, but I, I actually, I'd still classify them as, as commercial open source businesses because they're still charging customers for a differentiated experience, an insurance policy type product, indemnification, some warranty, even if they're not charging money for a proprietary layer, some proprietary IP, they're still charging for something. And that's kind of how I view them as still commercial open source. Like I still refer, I would refer to Red Hat as a commercial open source company because their open source core largely is Linux. Obviously they have hundreds of other open source projects and technologies that they're commercializing for enterprises, but their, their proprietary kind of crust or layer is, is not closed source software, proprietary IP. It's really just a, a value added insurance policy support and services model that, that they deliver to customers that, that you, that you can really only get from, from Red Hat in terms of the, the product that Red Hat sells. However, the, the business model, like you were, like you were saying that Red Hat has is, is definitely not as common as sort of combining proprietary closed core technology with open source uh, at the core. And so it sort of think of, of Red Hat's business model as pure open source and then charging for services and, and training and this kind of insurance policy subscription. Other companies that do that, that have succeeded at scale, like I mentioned, there aren't that many, but 
A few come to mind. One is SUSE, which is a very large Red Hat competitor. They have the same business model. Another one is uh, WSO2 in Sri Lanka. The WSO2 is a company in the, in the middleware uh, kind of category in, in the enterprise IT world. And they, they sell products for you know, connecting applications and doing messaging inter- integration, integration middleware, SOA software, and business process management, lots, lots of things of this nature. And I, I believe they're, they're a pretty successful large company, 50, 50 plus million in, in revenue. Percona is another one. Percona builds a fully open source support services and uh, offerings for lots of different types of databases. And they're pure open source business and they charge for services and, and training and so on. They're a pretty large company, multiple hundreds of people, I, I believe. But yeah, definitely not, not as common as sort of open source core, but then where the crust also includes you know, proprietary closed, closed source technology and, and that's actually sold and licensed. So that's more common with companies that, that are referred to as like the, the current next generation sort of like wave of commercial open source companies. So companies like HashiCorp, GitLab, Elastic, and, and so on. So I noticed that uh, Percona and uh, WS2, I, f- I forget what you said exactly, the Sri Lankan company, aren't on the list on OSS.cash. Can you talk a bit more about what OSS.cash is? Oh, sure. Yeah. So, so just, just for clarity, OSS.cash is a URL. So if, if you're in any browser, you can go to OSS.cash, like cash money, not, not cash invalidation. So if you're a programmer, don't, don't put in C-A-C-H-E. <laughs> but yeah, so it, that, that URL will take you to a spreadsheet. And in that spreadsheet is basically a lot of the, the motivating data for why I got personally convinced to start OSS Capital and also Open Core Summit. And it's like a list of very large commercial open source businesses or companies that, that have reached at least 100 million in revenue in any period of their kind of life cycles. So some of these companies aren't around anymore. So VA Linux, for example, is, is no longer. They, they reached 100 million in revenue. They were kind of building Linux-based hardware and, and services systems and supporting customers very early on. They went public during the dot-com bubble. You know, lots of other companies are in there. I think there's about 45 companies in there. The, the reason Percona and WSO2 in particular are not listed is just a revenue criteria thing. Like the, the goal of this sheet was really just to highlight commercial open source businesses that have ever reached 100 million or, or more in, in revenue. And I've thought a lot about over the years of like relaxing that constraint, reducing it down to 50 million or 20 million or something. I think if we did that, this sheet would grow a lot. It would probably be a couple of hundred companies if it was down to you know, 20, 20 million in revenue or so, and, and maybe closer to 100 if, if it was like 30. But I still think for companies that have ever reached like the, the WSO2 size and beyond, 50 million in revenue or more, it's a pretty short list. It's probably still around six, 60 or so companies that have, that have ever, ever done that. So it's, it's a very small number of companies. Going back to one of the earlier comments though, like the closed core kind of John Deere, or, you know, uh, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, any, any company that just, you know, that builds predominantly proprietary closed commercial products, really that's 99% of the industry or more. And so this commercial open source ecosystem in terms of like the, the number of companies is actually still really small. Only one way to find out how long the tail is, though. So it'd be interesting to see what would happen if you did drop it. I'd be really curious. One of the things I'm curious about is that the obvious result for me of having this sort of, of spreadsheet and doing this sort of data, it says on here that you started in 2013, is, well, let's found a fund or something and talk about it, which you seem to have done. Another thing that would be easy to do would be, let's have a conference and talk about it. Yep. So you've done that. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, I, I've, had, I've had a lot of fun. Lots, lots, of, lots of learnings and and uh, interesting experiences along the way. But 
Definitely. Yeah. I mean, the, the spreadsheet motivated starting OSS Capital for sure. And also open course. Summit. I guess the reason is because this thing's kind of been maintained for, you know, yeah, like going on seven years now, I guess. The growth of this spreadsheet has been pretty, pretty substantial. I think in 2013, like it was late 2013 when I kind of put this thing together and it was very, you know, tiny. It was like five columns and, and five rows or something. You know, the number of commercial open source companies, I'm not sure I had all the criteria figured out either, by the way, when it was like really just getting going, but I think it was like Cloudera, Red Hat. I might've put Mozilla Corporation in there and like, you know, two or three other companies I'm, I'm forgetting. It was a really small list. And, and really since then to now, you know, the, the list has just grown enormously in terms of companies that have, that have been able to get large and successful and, and figure things out. So I'm just kind of interested in studying and learning more about this category and two ways of doing that, two vehicles for doing that, I think that are interesting and ho- hopefully sustainable over, over a long period of time are investing at the really early stages and learning, learning about how things are, are working at that level and then building community and kind of bringing people together to kind of learn and learn from each other and share kind of different points of view and stuff. So what was Open Core Summit like? Yeah, the, so the, the first Open Core Summit happened in September last year, uh, 2019. So this, we got very lucky just, just before coronavirus kind of hit, hit the world. And I, it was really great. I, I'm super grateful for all the amazing speakers that were, were kind enough to offer their thoughts and time. We had a lot of great sponsors, close to a thousand people registered. It was an in-person physical conference. So it was kind of one of the one of the last few few conferences that happened that was sort of getting started and newer, I guess, before before the world really shut down. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was a really great, really great event. Couple of days. First day we had a bunch of keynote speakers, and the second day we had a bunch of like breakout tracks and sessions, sort of talking about product development, hiring, enterprise usage, strategy, marketing, business models, uh, licensing, obviously, a bunch of bunch of different topics. And so this year, the second Open Core Summit's happening in November, just after the elections. So November four, five, and six, and we're doing it online, totally, totally remotely, digitally, and hopefully having a, a much larger community this year. Yeah, we we actually had had plans to go international and do like a bunch of in person physical events in different geographies every quarter in in 2020, and and that was sort of the goal, like right after Open Core Summit in San Francisco last September. Of course, coronavirus and and all the all the chaos kind of changed plans dramatically. But definitely not stopping and excited to continue working on a conference. For now, it's an annual conference. I think over time, probably next year, we'll we'll do smaller, more more frequent events. So you and I have talked several times, I think, over the last couple of years, and I've always been fascinated by your process. It seems like you're trying to find that brief moment when a project starts to take off, but hasn't really considered creating a corporation, creating a company to generate money around it. Maybe I'm misunderstanding, but it seems like you're looking for a unicorn before it grows its horn. Can you elaborate on that? <laughs> that's interesting. I, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know if that's exactly kind of like a process intentionality, but I understand kind of what you're asking, Eric. And I guess the, the thing that I'm really curious about is if it's possible, and I, I believe it is, and I'm working, working a lot to, to kind of test this out. And, and I, I think we're on, on to some interesting things, but I want to see if it's possible to really get the world to think about companies that wouldn't exist unless uh, you know, this core open source project also existed, like to, to sort of think about those companies very differently. 
as their own kind of category and to learn about them and study them. And, and the reason I'm interested in that is, is I think these companies are actually really special and different and they're, they're quite impactful for the world, for society. They're a lot more sustainable in terms of kind of the, the overall model. And I'm just personally like, you know, intellectually like super fascinated in how this world works and, and just, you know, extremely passionate about it. And in terms of OSS capital, I think the way, you know, an investment thesis and a business model works is to find founders and open source projects that, you know, absolutely could be the next Confluent or the next HashiCorp or or the next GitLab. Uh, Obviously every company is unique in its own way, but that's, that's kind of the, that's, that's kind of the goal is to kind of identify how and why projects could be good candidates for, for starting businesses around them and not necessarily just one business, but even, even whole ecosystems. So that's something I'm really personally interested in. Do you have any examples of projects and companies that you've invested in who is in your portfolio? Yeah, sure. We, we, we've, talked, we've talked publicly about a few. Most, most of the companies are so early that they don't have websites. So there's, they're, still, they're still figuring a lot of things out. But one that we, we invested in that was publicly announced shortly after we did it, actually just when we were getting started, is Dev, Dev Community. We were the lead investors in Dev's seed round in 2018. Are you guys familiar with Dev at all? Like the Dev community kind of oh, social yeah, network? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, we love them. Cool. Yeah, really amazing. Super, super talented founders. Ben Halpern actually started off with a Twitter account a few years ago and grew like a big community on Twitter, the practical dev, at the practical dev. And that evolved into Dev.2, which is really like a social network for self-taught programmers, really is kind of the way I think about it. But the dev platform itself, the core of it is open source, so the, the backend and content management system, the way, the way you produce content and generate it and go through the whole workflow is open source. And right now they're, they're actually kind of slowly sharing a vision publicly about kind of making your own social network on the dev open source core for any type of community. So there's like MMA communities and you know, finance trader communities and communities for, for different, all these different types of areas in the world where people just want to get together, collaborate and share content. And I remember talking with Ben, the founder, super early on. Ben's kind of the original creator of the Twitter exchange. And it's actually three founders, Ben, Ben, Peter, and Jess. Ben's kind of really passionate about what an open source Facebook might look like. So it's a really cool vision. I was you know, extremely lucky to be introduced to Ben early on, actually by my friend, Jeff Meyerson. So shout out to Jeff, the Software Engineering Daily podcast creator. So Jeff's also a podcaster. And yeah, just uh, learned, learned a lot about what they're doing and was super, super excited about it. Other companies we've invested in. So we, we, we have an investment in the Risk Five ecosystem. Are, are any of you guys familiar with Risk Risk Five at all? A little bit. Some of our listeners may not be, for sure. Yeah, I'm happy to, I'm happy to talk about it. And it's actually something that I think that's really important to learn about just in even the open source world. Risk Five is an open source like Linux for processors, for chips. And it's not an open source core project itself. It's more of a spec- specification and, and sort of it becoming an industry standard specification for basically designing and creating open source or, or potentially closed source as well, processor designs in silicon. So currently the way you know chips in, in the hardware world are made is you have to go through these long, lengthy, complicated processes with Intel or with ARM, which are the two kind of dominant companies in the, in the semiconductor industry. And there's a bunch of others in that, in that industry, but RISC-V is kind of unlocking lots of innovation and, and providing an open source standard for basically hardware programmers to build open source chips. And it's, it's kind of open source hardware, really. A lot less of it is open source software, but the software ecosystem 
around that risk five technology is, is growing pretty rapidly. So we made an early investment there and are still kind of learning about that community, definitely still getting going really early. We also have invested in, I'm not sure if I can say the names of the specific companies, but in, in the GraphQL ecosystem and the WebAssembly ecosystem. In, also, we're an early investor in Mattermost, which is a, a Slack, uh, Slack competitor, but they have kind of, the kind of similar GitLab model where they focus a lot on kind of private enterprise messaging deployments and, and requirements, and, and they, they focus on lots of enterprise customers. Uh, less of a kind of a hosted cloud Slack option offering and more, more built for enterprises. And, and the, whole, the whole system at the core is open source. So yeah, those are just a few companies, but it's mostly kind of developer tools, infrastructure, software, middleware. I think over time, uh, there's going to be a lot of application level innovation and really interesting progress, like higher up the stack. But for now, most of these, these companies are still also still pretty low in the stack, data infrastructure, machine learning, developer tools, and so on. What's the expected return time on these? Because open source is really tough to get money back immediately. So I'm just curious if you're like a traditional VC model where, you know, it's five years or, or whatever, or how, how are you doing that given that these companies are, as you say, quote, different? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they're different on a lot of the fundamentals, but in, in terms of how long it takes, which is, I think, your, your question. And by the way, correct me if I'm wrong, if, if, you, if you want me to elaborate on anything else, but... No, no, um, that, that's yeah. right. I mean, I'm, it, you keep going on about how they're different, but I, I'm not really sure how. And you mentioned earlier that they're more sustainable. I'm not sure what that means. And as a VC fund, right, or as, as a fund in general, that's really important because the whole yep. idea is that you take on risk by giving them money, and then in return, yep. you get X at some amount of time. Yep. So how, how yeah. do you judge what that time is? So the time frame that we operate on is, is definitely like a, a kind of a 10-year time frame. It's not like a couple years or a few years. And it, I think that's just a, 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 a truism for all really important companies. It just takes a really long time to build something that you know is going to work at scale or, or not. Sometimes it's easier to tell super early. The company is growing quickly and, and they're making faster progress. But each company is different. I'd say in general, though, it's, yeah, it's definitely a 7 to 10-year time frame. And I'm happy to go into a lot of the reasons and sort of differences as to why commercial open source companies are very different on a lot of different levels, like hiring, product development, business models, and so on. I think the main reason that they're very different, though, is, is in the way that they create value being very different. And also, independently, the way they capture value also being quite, quite different. So I'm happy, happy to go on into that if that's interesting. All right, we don't have a ton of time, but I'm, I'm curious... How are they different in sustainability without saying that they're different? How are they different? Sure. So I'd say commercial open source software companies are very different in terms of sustainability because the core way that that company drives value creation and innovation in the world is as actually decoupled from the company. And so what I mean by that is the open source core can, can continue to exist and support a large ecosystem and contributors can come around that. And, and no, no one can kind of like kill that open source project independently or, or because that company died. It's basically not tied to the lifetime of the company. So you can think of the company having its own lifetime, basically governed by you know, reaching profitability or raising funding or gen- generating revenue from customers. The open source project is kind of completely independent of those things. Obviously, more, uh, m- much more true if there's a diverse external contributor ecosystem around, around the open source core. And really, I think what most companies aspire to is to build really healthy, diverse contributor and user ecosystems around their open source technology. And so that's kind of, I think the main reason why I think they're very different on the sustainability dimension is the open source core has a survivability 
dimension that far far outlasts the the company in mo- in most cases. And, and so I think that's one that's one interesting aspect. I'm curious. Um, one of the things I'm interested in that privy to what you said is a lot of companies that are too tied to their open source product end up influencing the roadmap of that product. And when you influence the roadmap of a product, then you end up making it less diverse. And so there's this always a constant tension between moneyed interest in an open source project and other interest in an open source project. Because the point of a company is to raise capital for the most part. I mean, that's not the only reason, but in general, that's what people do when they go to work. They want to have enough money to, to go home. And so I'm curious how you help your portfolio projects or how you help other, you know, COSS companies to basically walk that line between being overly invested in their one core thing and making sure that they do have a diverse ecosystem that disagrees with them around that thing so that they can continue to thrive in a somewhat hostile world. Does my question make sense? I think it's challenging to answer that because it's so broad. I'm not exactly yeah, sure where sorry. I can focus my, my answer, but I'm happy to give you some general thoughts. I mean, I think the, the way that we help commercial open source companies early on is really just to figure out how to make different decisions that will increase the likelihood of success in terms of both the business success and the open source project's success. And so it's, it's really not just about focusing all the energy on you know, shareholder capitalism. It's really focusing on stakeholder capitalism. And, and this, is, this, is, this is really an interesting kind of detail. I was planning on, on kind of going to this kind of economic level to answer your question, but I think it's actually a pretty, a pretty useful way of looking at it. The sort of traditional capitalistic model was really popularized by a guy named Milton Friedman. And Milton is pretty well known in the world of economics for sort of, you know, sort of thinking about and educating people about like the purpose of a company. I think it's just, you, you just mentioned there, Richard, is really just to generate profits and to satisfy shareholders, specifically shareholders. That is the purpose, the sole purpose of a company. And, yep. and really over, over time, we've seen, we've seen this change quite a bit in the industry. You know, I'm, not, I'm not sure if, if you've read this or listeners perhaps, but Mark Benioff, who's the founder of Salesforce, wrote a New York Times op-ed earlier in the year, actually, arguing for why we need a new kind of capitalism and why you know, shareholder capitalism, Milton Friedman style capitalism is kind of dead and why we need to think about a different type of capitalism. And I was actually motivated to just really dig into specific things that Mark was saying. And I, and I just kind of stumbled upon and discovered a gentleman by the name of Ed Freeman. So yeah, unfortunately, his last name sounds like Friedman, but it's F-R-E-E-M-A-N, Freeman. And what Ed did in the mid-80s was he actually discovered a theory called stakeholder theory. And it's sort of like constituency stakeholder dynamics, where in terms of the world of economics... And applying this to capitalism, instead of just focusing all your energy on just the shareholder, just the person that has an equity interest in a company, there's also a way of thinking about or a different way of thinking about capitalism, which is stakeholder capitalism or stakeholder theory. And I've been hugely lucky to have, you know, over the last several months, actually pretty recently, gotten in touch with Ed. We've done a couple of podcasts and he's actually speaking at, at Open Course Summit later in the year. One of the reasons why I think commercial open source software companies are actually, or just commercial open source businesses, companies in general are very different is, and this is somewhat of a, maybe a contrarian kind of way of looking at it, but I actually think that they are stakeholder capitalistic as opposed to being shareholder capitalistic, where, you know, kind of, clo- you can think of closed core 
technology companies is, is really predominantly being predominantly being shareholder capitalistic and open source core or, or commercial open source businesses, companies being stakeholder capitalistic. And I think the reason for that is instead of just pouring all their energy and time and effort into their shareholders, they really have to focus on a stakeholder kind of constituency approach to balancing lots of concerns across many different types of people and entities. So in particular, commercial open source companies really have to think about enabling, supporting, creating value, and paying attention to their competitors, their partners, their developer ecosystems, their users, their customers, their employees, their investors, of course, their leadership, so many different types of stakeholders. And really balancing all of that in unison or in harmony is, is, is kind of where, where, where all the challenges kind of come up. But I think the best run companies kind of try to achieve balance and harmony in a lot of different ways across, across a lot of those different stakeholders. Love it. That's really awesome. That's actually very insightful. Thank you so much. That pretty much wraps up our time for today. So we're going to switch over to Spotlight, if that's okay. Before we do that, I want to make sure people know where to find you on the internet, what URLs, what Twitter handles, et cetera. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I'm, a, I'm at AsyncIO on Twitter. It's, it's short for Asynchronous IO, A-S-Y-N-C-H-I-O. And yeah, OSS Capital, OSS.Capital is the, the website for OSS Capital. The website for Open Course Summit is opencoursesummit.com. I think that actually takes you to the 2019 event. Uh, and we're, we're making a lot more announcements there. But we're also on Twitter at, at Open Course Summit. Awesome. Thank you so much. Okay. Spotlight, where we shine some light on other things that have helped us out in the past or things that we think need help or just need light. Justin, who do you got for us today? In our notes, I have eb.js. But what everyone doesn't know, it means Eric Berry. So the past couple of weeks have been really, really rough to say the least. And Code Fund shutting down really broke my heart. But despite all of the weight on Eric's shoulders, he really got me through it. I want to thank him for the past nine months. Working with him every day was such an amazing experience and one I will never forget. So Eric, thank you. You made my open source dreams come true. And I love you. And I can't wait to work with you someday in the future. Love you too, brother. That's awesome. Eric, who do you have besides Justin Dorfman or just Justin? Oh, I don't know how to follow that. What I had originally, I'll probably save for another time. Yeah, so Code Fund is did shut down. It it's been a it's been a rough a rough one, but I suppose I'll just take this time to extend my gratitude to all of those publishers, all of those open source projects, all of those bloggers and all of those application builders and maintainers and all of them that were within the network and thank them for what they do. Finding funding in open source is a really hard problem. There are a whole bunch of solutions around there to make that that easier. However, none of them seem to work super great. CodeFund obviously didn't work super great because it's out of business. But I do want to thank all of them for what they've done, the, the contributions that they do for the community and basically paving a path for other developers to be able to come in and, and write 20% of the code and still come out looking like a superstar. So that's uh, my pick. Love it. Thank you. So earlier on in this podcast, Joseph mentioned a company that was trying to imagine Facebook if it was open source. That reminded me of Scuttlebutt. Scuttlebutt is super awesome, decentralized social networking. We only share what you want to share. And uh, scuttlebutt.nz is the URL for that. 
super cool. You can also use Patchwork, which is their like app. Uh, I've used it before. I would like to use it more, but it has a uh, founder effect problem where there's um, only a certain amount of people there and they generally talk about Scuttlebutt and other stuff. And I wish all my friends used it, but they don't. But Scuttlebutt is great. And I want to point to that. All right, Joseph, what do you got for us? I'd like to mention the Kubernetes project. This is kind of, kind of a, a huge open source community and, and ecosystem, very successful project. So I'm, I'm not sure Kubernetes needs any help for promotion or, or awareness at this point. It's kind of ubiquitous, but I'm grateful to the Kubernetes project in particular for kind of giving me all the opportunities personally and professionally that I've been able to have over the last five-ish years. The number of people that I've met through the Kubernetes project, the community, and also just kind of like whatever personal network growth and career benefits I got out of it are immeasurable. And you know, I think it's, it's, a, it's a huge honor to just like just be associated with Kubernetes in any kind of way early on. And so I'm super grateful for that project. And it's kind of been a really interesting journey seeing how, how the Kubernetes project has evolved. But yeah, it's a really, a really amazing community ecosystem. Like, like I said, kind of, I don't think they're, they're in need of any more like promotion or like awareness, but it's a project that I'm super grateful to. That's enough of a reason for anything. I've put note on here before, so it's all right. Some projects just don't need awareness, but they're good to point out and say that they did a good thing. Thank you so much. It's been awesome. When is the, the next Open Core Summit? Next Open Core Summit is November 4, 5, and 6, j- just after the elections in 2020. Awesome. In that case, see you there. Thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. See ya. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, with enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage options, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com sustain.